The Alan Watts iPhone app is now available on the iTunes App Store, featuring the entire Alan Watts podcast series at your fingertips. Visit alanwattsapp.com for more information. Because naturally, when you love someone very much indeed, in the enthusiasm and ardor of youth, you say things that are hardly logical or rational. You stand up before an altar and you say, my darling, my sweetheart, my perfect pet, I adore you so much that I will live with you forever and ever until death do us part. And that's the way you feel at the time. In a rather similar mood, ancient peoples would hail their kings and say, O king, live forever. Obviously, this was not literally meant. They were just wishing him a long life. But to live forever, no, sir. No mortal does that. So, the trouble was, you see, that when uh, certain kinds of extravagant poetic expressions got in the hands of people like Augustine and Tertullian, who were rather influenced by Roman literalness, they wrote it into the law books. And so this amazing situation came about. But we still have not fully explored the subtlety of it. Let us consider certain periods when uh, this attitude of prudism towards sexuality was in, a, in an ascendancy. Nearest to our times is the bourgeois uh, revolution, you might call it, in Victorian England and the United States. We all say Victorian uh, as an adjective to indicate Grundyism, uh, extreme monogamy, uh, a definite disgust for all things sexual. And yet, when we really go into the history of the Victorian period, we find that it was an extremely lascivious epoch. One has only to look at the lushness of Victorian furniture to realize that chairs are disguised women. <laughs> that the way even piano legs are shaped. I mean, this kind of thing is throughout Victorian art forms. And the conduct of the British aristocracy during that period beggared description. <laughs> People like Freud and Havelock Ellis made certain mistake. Uh, they said about the church and about religion in general that it was nothing but a form of sublimated sex. They said these people, for curious reasons, suppress sex. And therefore it becomes uh, a very powerful force for them. You must remember, of course, that they worked on a hydraulic analogy of human psychology. That uh, they liken it all to a river. If you dammed it up, it would burst the dam. It doesn't actually follow that human psychology is hydraulic. But this is the metaphor they used. Now they said, the church has repressed sex. But actually, if you look at its symbolism, it is nothing but an expression of sex. Everything is reduced to libido as the fundamental reality. 
And the church replied, it's nothing of the kind. We deny this. We think that this reduction of everything to sex is just a way of uh, attacking holy things. And on the contrary, we would say that people who are fascinated with sex and make it their god are, repre are repressing religion. <laughs> now the problem in this debate, everybody missed the boat. Uh, the church should have been in the position to say to Freud, well, of course, thank you very much. Uh, uh, yes, indeed, our symbolism is sexual. The steeples on our churches, <laughs> the uh, vesicle-shaped windows and uh, so heraldic shields on which we put images of the crucifix or the Virgin Mother of God. These are all quite plainly sexual, but you see, the sexual biology, in its turn, reveals the mysteries of the universe. Sex is not mere sex. Sex is a holy thing, and is uh, one of the most marvelous revelations of the divine. But imagine, the church just couldn't say that. If you look at Tibetan Buddhist iconography, their images, or you look in Hindu temples, you will find things that Europeans and Americans have never been able to understand. Here are images of Buddhas and of the gods engaged in amazing diversions with their female counterparts. <laughs> and everybody thinks that these are kind of dirty sculptures. <laughs> now they're nothing of the kind. They are saying to the people who look at them, the play of man and woman is on that level, on the level of biology, a reflection of the fundamental play of the cosmos. The play of the positive and negative principles, of the light and the dark, of the mental and the material, they all play together. <coughs> And the function of sexual play is not merely the survival and utilitarian function of reproducing the species as it is among animals to a very large extent. What peculiarly distinguishes human sexuality is that it brings the partners closer and closer to each other in an intense state of united feeling. In other words, it is a sacrament, the outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace bringing about love. And so, if that is peculiar to human beings, it is perfect nonsense to degrade human sexuality by saying it should only be carried on in the way that the animals do theirs. Because they have not yet, as it were, evolved to the place where sex is the sacramental expression of man and woman's love. And this love in that sense is a kind of enthusiasm which means a being possessed by the divine. Falling in love, uh, although considered by practical people to be a sort of madness, is actually the same sort of thing as the mystical vision, uh, a grace and in its light, 
we see people in their divine aspect when as the song says every little breeze whispers Louise uh, there is a sort of extraordinary state of mystical intoxication in which the ideal woman has become the goddess which is from one point of view what every woman is if you see her with the scales of your eyes and likewise every man seen with the scales of her eyes so what happened then as a result of this historical situation was mutual name-calling between the proponents of religion and the proponents of uh, scientific naturalism such as Freud and uh, Havelock Ellis and in our own times Albert Ellis uh, and people of that kind they've never got together because they've never understood neither the church nor the opponents of the church have clearly understood that the secret or unconscious motivation of sexual repression is to make it all the more interesting and on the other side it has not been clearly understood that the sexual biology and all that goes with it is a figuring forth on the level of biology of what the whole universe is about ecstatic play so as a result there has been a kind of compromise today in ecclesiastical circles sex is being damned with faint praise uh, people are saying after all yes uh, sex was made by God and we should remember the Jewish point of view and uh, it is uh, perhaps for something more than reproduction to bring about the cementing of the marriage ties between husband and wife but still in practice it remains the frightening taboo on the other hand the opposition to Christian prudery goes overboard and always moves in the direction of total license you see what's going on is a contest between the people who want the skirts pulled down to the floor and the people who want them pulled up to the neck <laughs> and you you know you've got to draw the line somewhere but the play between these forces is where are we going to draw it well that's very exciting <laughs> provide neither side wins I mean imagine what it would be like if the libertines won and they took over the church so that on Wednesday evenings the young uh, Presbyterian group would meet for prayer through sex <laughs> <coughs> every child would go to the school physician for a course in hygienics 
and they would have classes and they'd have plastic models and all the children would do it in class in very <laughs> clean hygienic circumstances all sprayed with rubbing alcohol everything would be fine imagine how boring it would all become so you see the people who say no modesty is important have something right about them but they mustn't be allowed to get away with it but they mustn't be obliterated you see life works that way let's take an entirely different analogy let's take a given biological group a species we'll call A it has a natural enemy B now one day A gets furious at the natural enemy B and says let's obliterate it and they gather their forces and they knock out their natural enemy well suddenly after a while they begin to get weak they get overpopulated there's nobody around to eat up their surplus creatures and they don't have to keep their muscles tensed against any enemy and they begin to fall apart because they destroyed their enemy what they should do is cultivate the enemy that's the real meaning of love your enemy there is such a thing as a beloved enemy <laughs> and if you don't have a beloved enemy in other words if the flies and the spiders don't go together there are going to be too many spiders or too many flies and these balances uh, keep the course of nature going. Well, it's exactly the same thing as between the libertines and the prudes. They need each other. And you should thank, if you've got a prudish father and mother, you should be very grateful to them for having made sex so interesting. <laughs> So don't defy them completely. Don't go around campus with placards bearing four-letter words. <laughs> because that's going to spoil the show. But every generation must react to the one before, you see, to keep this tension going. And it is by this tension, this play of the opposites, that we have the love that makes the world go round. <laughs> Listening to Alan Watts from the Spoken Word Library of the Electronic University. For copies of this and other Alan Watts programs, please go to alanwatts.com on the World Wide Web or call us toll free at 1 800 WO Watts. That's A L A N W A T T S.com or 1 800 WO W A T T S. The Watts website features free audio downloads, program lists, and information on Watts' life and works. Once again, that's alanwatts.com or 1-800-W-O-Watts.